Hello, everyone. This is Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp. And today we're speaking with Professor Daniel Schwemer, who holds the teaching chair in ancient Near Eastern studies at the University of Würzburg and is one of the principal investigators of a project called Magea, or to give its full title, DFG Center for Advanced Studies Magea. Uh, Daniel, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. Yeah, Magea is a center, as you said. It's uh, not the normal kind of project I do on magical texts. I myself, I'm a cuneiformist. I specialize on Mesopotamian texts, Akkadian and Sumerian texts that are ritual texts and belong to the wide corpus of magical texts from the ancient world. And I'm one of the principal investigators of this project, but my own area of expertise does not describe the focus of this project because it is um, planned as a center where all kinds of students of magical texts and antiquity can come together. And that is a specific characteristic of this DFG program, this program of the German Research Foundation, uh, which allows scholars in the humanities to set up a center, which is composed on the one hand of local scholars and their teams, and on the other hand is composed by so-called fellows, colleagues who come in for some time, for half a year or a year to work with us from different fields. And so the local groups here in Würzburg are specialists in Egyptology, specialists in, in historical comparative philology, linguistics with a special focus on ancient Greek. Uh, and myself, I do ancient Mesopotamian studies, also a bit of Hittite uh, on the side. I'm, I'm a cuneiformist mainly. And we do have our specific research projects within Magea, but we are collaborating with scholars from all disciplines across the ancient cultures while studying what we call magical text traditions of antiquity in, in West Asia, uh, so the Middle East and the Eastern Mediterranean, so Egypt and, and Greece and, and adjoining regions. and. This is what, what is really exciting about this project, that we we, we are all people who, who come together in handbooks, usually, virtually. We are invited by someone to write, Daniel, can you write a chapter on magic in ancient Mesopotamia? I found someone else to write something about Egypt. And then there's Koshi, who will do Coptic magic and so on. Uh, and it was always my dream to to not only meet my colleagues from the different fields in a handbook, but actually be in a classroom together with them and read their texts with them immediately and not be uh, forced to rely on translations and handbook articles, but really engage with them, get the texts explained to me by them, and also get the opportunity to read my texts with them, explain them, uh, how I understand my ritual texts, the incantations that I'm trying to translate and, and get inspired by their feedback and comments. So if you want to, 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 to have the basic goal of the project is, is having a handbook that becomes alive, bringing people really together who are usually just put together in volumes or conference volumes in, in a rather additive uh, fashion. Right. So integration of all this additive stuff that's out there and bringing dialogue together, bringing scholars together in dialogue, scholars of very separate, historically not very separate, but disciplinarily very separate fields like Egyptology and 
cuneiform studies and Greek studies and all these kind of hives of knowledge, bringing them together into one hive and seeing what comes out. Yeah, and these are all fields that are characterized by highly specialized philologies and, and people who, who work on manuscripts that only a few people in the world actually can read. Uh, but they also become then very narrow because, and, and that is true of myself uh, as well, I can get very excited about the reading of three cuneiform signs and spend days on them. But then you begin to lose perspective sometimes. I hear you. So one of the things you've done a lot of is scholarly work that brings things out of the narrow field of Assyriology um, and, and related subjects, like, for example, with Tzvi Abush, your Corpus of Mesopotamian Anti-Witchcraft Rituals publications, mm -hmm. which are in English, which is, like it or not, probably the most universally accessible scholarly language these days, translation, but, you know, solid textual corpus for work on this material for people who don't, who aren't Assyriologists. So th this could be seen as a... Uh, uh, much more ambitious in a way, continuation of that general thrust of trying to bring stuff out of the the narrow confines of the 10 scholars or 20 scholars or whatever who who go to the annual conference and uh, the minutiae into the field where people who are just maybe interested in magic cross-culturally can, can access it. Yes, quite. And I think the thing that we are trying to do now wouldn't have been possible even 20 or 30 years ago because Actually, these text editions, like like the one you mentioned, the, the Corpus of Mesopotamian Anti-Witchcraft Rituals, but also quite a few other text editions in cuneiform studies uh, and in Egyptology, also of the Greek magical papyri, Coptic magical texts, didn't exist at the time. Uh, the disciplines hadn't reached the stage where they would be able to communicate, actually, uh, with other disciplines. I was always told by classicists, yeah, well... We know there are these texts uh, in, in, in the cuneiform world, but where, where can we read them? How are they accessible? Um, we cannot really use them. It's a, it's a black box for us. And um, so in a way, I think fields like Egyptology and Assyriology are behind classics where, where you have uh, uh, had over the past 20 years a very very lively group of colleagues who, who interacted, met for conferences, produced volumes together. And Egyptology and, and Assyriology, Mesopotamian studies, uh, Hittitology, they were all acknowledged to be somehow part of this world, but had not yet reached a stage of maturity where they could really engage. And this is beginning to change. Of course, there's still a lot of editorial work to do in these fields uh, and probably always will be. That's just because we find new texts all the time. We uh, It will not stop. But but this point, we felt here in Würzburg, a stage of maturity had been reached where even Egyptology and Assyriology are ready to engage and, and compare. So we, we tried to argue for that, unfortunately got the funding for it. The sort of subtitle of the project is Magic Between Entanglement, Interaction and Enology. And I wonder if you can discuss the thinking behind those terms. They're very evocative. It sounds great, but what, what, <laughs> how does that practically um, yeah. direct research? Yeah, the, these three words, entanglement, interaction, and analogy, refer to 
the basic questions that comparative research uh, brings with it. Because I think we are at the stage mainly where the claim that ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Anatolia, Syria, Egypt, that this is all one cultural area and the magical text traditions that we know from this area in a way form part of a great shared tradition that then through late antiquity feeds through also to European traditions. That's a claim often made. And I think at this point, it's it's really very much a claim and has never really been studied in detail. It is not unlikely, of course, that there are connections. But the questions that, that we're interested in is what kind of connections are there? Do we have entanglement? Are there really... Uh, how did Egyptian scholars at an Assyrian court interact with their colleagues? Are there any traces of interaction between uh, these people who were expert in their experts in their respective magical uh, traditions? Or do we rather see that things run in parallel next to each other and are, are compartmentalized in a way? How do we explain that? A Mesopotamian goddess of the netherworld, that is what many of your listeners might might know, that this goddess Ereshkigal, which is already attested in Sumerian mythology, is still attested in Greek amulets and in uh, uh, Greek magical papyri. What does that actually mean? Is that just a name that survives isolated, or is it part of a tradition that is present in various different ways? And these three words, entanglement, interaction, analogy is it just an analogy is it a parallel development and there are just is just punctual contact and this is something one has to really study in detail with concrete cases and i'm sure one will find examples for different developments and constellations between uh, the various cultures and languages that we are studying uh, but i think it's time to to address this in a concrete fashion rather than to making broad claims about it. It's pastime. If I may, that this reminds me of two cases. Uh, the first of all, in the broad scale explanatory narrative world of things, mm -hmm. there's an idea that comes and goes in scholarly fashion, which is known as diffusionism. So this this idea, this assumption that you have alluded to, which is that there's a sort of proto-magical culture of the Eastern Mediterranean. And it just mm. flows through kind of forever. It, it's always evolving, of course, but uh, you can make, you can draw actual lineages between, say, for example, Sumerian era magic material and medieval magical material. That would be a diffusionist approach. And your point is, is that actually borne out by the evidence? Or is that maybe part of the picture, but also we need to look at other things. And one of the other questions that might arise, it seems to me, is just you have to factor in what seem to be perennial concerns of pre-modern magic, like uh, mm. making sure childbirth goes okay and uh, making sure bad juju doesn't get projected onto you by, by bad actors, which are concerns that we see in pretty much every pre-modern culture, right? And it seems to me not, not implausible to call those just perennial human concerns, right? So there's that kind of just human nature sort of side of it as well. Yeah, um, there's the precariousness of human existence that is at the bottom of many of these, at the bottom of the context of many of these rituals, that right. their purpose, their, their, their goals. Uh, and since the cultures that we study are all on a similar 
technological societal uh, level of development um, uh, and to some extent also share a similar environment. Of course, there are the same situations uh, or similar situations, comparable situations, and there may well also be similar symbols, similar associations, similar analogies that develop independently. Uh, so we, we certainly do not embark on this assuming that everything that is similar is the same that would lead us astray because and, and that is a particular concern of course with magical uh, texts because some of the also the the mechanics of magic as uh, they were called the the ritual symbols the actions the typical actions the structure of rituals um is actually similar around the world certain basic things are always used and we are all familiar with them from our own uh, religious or ritual uh, practice, the, the symbolism of night and day, the, the usage of figurines of some kind. Uh, all this is perennial and you find it everywhere and then it is not enough to say, oh yeah, here we the morning is used as a occasion when the delivery and the healing of the patient occurs because the sun is rising. That will not be enough to construct a diffusionist relationship between two two texts, but you, uh, but if the name of certain gods overlap, and and in one text the, that name is foreign, and also a plant is used that is not part of the natural environment in the in the context of one of the texts, then you begin to think, ah, this might be something more specific. I, I have to look into that. Is there a relationship? How could these texts be actually historically uh, related? That reminds me of the second thing I wanted to bring, which is a sort of case study that has been done within the field of classics or maybe the the more specialized field of history of magic and religions within the broader context of classics, which is in the Greek magical papyri, we have a huge amount of uh, the god Yao, which is the most common name for the Hebrew god in these Greek texts. He is he is the most mentioned god in the Greek magical papyri. So that so a lot of attention has been not enough in my view, but a lot of attention has been given to this question: Are these Jews writing this these magical texts? Are they non-Jews who are appropriating this god name? And if so, why? So this is the kind of question that you're to bring Erish Kigal back into the conversation. You're you want to apply to all these god names and all these kind of recurring things that pop up over time. Indeed, and, and when addressing them, we want to have uh, people like Gideon Bohak or Joachim Kwak, an Egyptologist, special, Gideon Bohak, specialist for, for Jewish magical texts. We want to have them sit in one room and explain to us uh, why maybe the mention of Yao here does not mean that these were Jews, but it could be an isolated borrowing. Or I can say something about Ereshkigal, whether... The context in which this name of Ereshkigal occurs is in any way related to what we know from Mesopotamian texts about Ereshkigal and Ereshkigal's role in uh, magical texts, magical rituals. And of course, you can do that by writing emails and uh, reading books and etc. But well, we we here thought my colleague in Egyptology and and uh, comparative philology, we thought it wouldn't it be wonderful to do that while sitting in the same room, have the opportunity to to actually read the texts together. 
what could be more wonderful than that? Congratulations again on on get making that happen. And I I would like to congratulate whoever in the bureaucracy signed off on it because it's an inspired project. And it's the sort of thing that often hasn't gotten funding when it should have over the years. Your general research aim is clear. You want scholarly collaboration between the highest level scholars of different relevant, potentially historically connected magical traditions to get together, compare notes, delve into texts together, look for parallels, start to tabulate things, look for differences as well. What are some of the more focused research, um, yeah. I hate this term, but research outputs that you're thinking, that you're aiming to achieve? Well, first of all, what is the scope? What is the both the chron chronological scope, if you have a hard sort of limit, and what is the actual time of the project? Yeah, the, the project runs for four and hopefully then another four years yeah. in so two you're gonna, phases. you're going to renew it after four years, and of course you will yeah, get that. Yeah, that. that, that's the plan. Yeah. That's the opportunity we have if we're successful in the first phase. And the the time periods that we cover is, is basically from the beginning of writing magical texts uh, uh, to late antiquity, though the idea was to have to focus on, on the latest periods rather uh, in the second phase than in the first. Uh, in reality, things do not always work according to such schemes because colleagues have have their research semesters at certain times and, and uh, we, we, we are certainly flexible in, in that regard with the structure. And the, the definition, which specific topic a certain a colleague wants to study within Magea, within his own discipline, uh, that is really open to them, uh, that there are people studying magic bowls, there are people studying Eth Ethiopic texts, there are uh, Egyptologists who are interested in demons and, and others are interested in, in the texts in, in the pyramids uh, that protect uh, the grave chamber, the tomb chamber of the pharaoh. So there is a very wide range of uh, individual projects. One focus that we have together with the Egyptologists here in Würzburg is uh, the magical texts that were produced and then used as rituals for the kings in Babylonia, Assyria, and in Egypt. And one of my colleagues in astrology, Beatrice Barayi, she's working on probably the most extensive ritual that, that was composed for kings in Mesopotamia, a ritual called the bathhouse ritual, which, which I also partly worked on, which is a very comprehensive purification ritual for the king and involves all kinds of other magical rituals, also anti-witchcraft rituals, but also rituals to um, um, counter the possible punishment that you've loaded upon yourself, brought upon yourself by transgressing certain uh, ethical or other taboos. Uh, so this is a very comprehensive uh, ritual. And at the same time, uh, a postdoc researcher in Egyptology is working on the pyramid texts, how to protect the deceased pharaoh from evil demons. And, and so there are two projects that focus on the person of the king, uh, and thereby they will not only compare how, how these different incantations work, what their image, imagery is, their, their rhetoric, etc., but it will also contrib contribute to understanding what the position of the king, which is central to both societies, is uh, in particular 
how the person of the king is protected with these uh, religious magical rituals that were regularly performed for, for kings, both in Egypt and Assyria and Babylonia. And I myself, my, my main project is is on a, a ritual called Bitmesari, the house of enclosure. It's not a specifically royal ritual, but it was also, of course, um, performed for kings in its most extensive version. And that is a ritual that has never been fully edited, so nobody can read it at the moment, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, it is a ritual for protecting a house against demons, for for uh, expelling the demons from a house and then protecting the house. And what is fascinating about this ritual is that in the course of the ritual on the walls of the house, a whole mythological ritual world is is set up, painted onto the wall, onto the walls, uh, all kinds of protective spirits. And in the ritual, the ritualist talks to these protective spirits who are then engaging, uh, become active, of course, in the ritual for the patient and protect the house. And in the morning, all these paintings are removed and the patient comes back from his travel to mythological time where ritual is very powerful back into the present time and the house is protected. And at the same time, colleague in Egyptology studies how the temple of Edfu, the walls are covered with inscriptions, how the temple is protected with pictures and texts against demons and, and other evildoers. Um, and again, those two texts are entirely different, but by reading his texts and, and getting to know his texts, I certainly see differences. I see my own texts in, in sharper focus, uh, understand better uh, their specific features and and their commonalities with, with with other texts. So in this way, very specialized philological work on very specific cuneiform texts comes together with a comparative approach and and a more open thinking about the interpretation of these things. Indeed, you've gone from magic to do with the king, which is what I, as a non-specialist, definitely associate with Old Kingdom Egypt and the Akkadian world up until a certain point, uh, Persian mm. period, let's say. Um, the king is yeah. everything. This is true of the astral omen material as well. It's either to do with the realm as a whole or the king, but you don't have personal uh, horoscopes yet. But you've just gone to a completely demotic example, potentially, right? Someone, uh, someone just protecting their house, I guess, right? Is this the the man in the street, like the sort of the sort of person we might expect much later to be a to be purchasing a, a Aramaic incantation bowl to protect their house is this the sort of audience we're thinking of? Probably, in principle, yes. That that is something in in the ritual that I'm studying. What what is interesting is that we have different versions. We have a very ceremonial version with lots of incantations and 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 many many figurines. And then we have the variant version, which is much more simple, uses fewer figurines and seems to be, so to say, a cheaper version the of budget. the same thing in principle. The budget version. So yeah. um, budget version, the same ritual. And my impression is that, of course, our sources, well, our cuneiform sources are very much focused on the king and on elite versions of rituals. Uh, but my impression is that in those layers of the ritual world, which did not participate in the written discourse, whose practitioners did not write clay tablets, but just practitioned rituals offered them uh, on the streets. And we know about these people. 
from the texts. They did exist, but they didn't write up their rituals. And so we, we don't know for certain what they did. And, and a question that is controversially discussed is whether they did in principle the same, but in a more simple, less sophisticated uh, way, or whether there was a whole different ritual world with different basic concepts uh, that is hidden from us because it is a uh, it was current in a part of society that did not participate in writing texts and is therefore hidden very much from our knowledge apart from texts that mention the these ritual practitioners and or or sometimes also denigrate these ritual practitioners as as uh, suspicious characters. And um, my impression is mostly they actually did, in principle, the same, but they did it cheaper and they were on the margins of society and therefore sometimes also denigrated by those who were parts of the elite and, of course, were much better ritualists, they right. would think. Well, you <laughs> the scribal guild to be... Um... You know, policing the boundaries of of these things. It, it, it was yes. not surprising, uh, and that, that is was... visible in incantations. Right. Okay. People who think magic is uh, not worthy of research. Um, that there's still many people who who would just assume this. Um, if they don't think magic is worthy of research, they also don't think society is worthy of research because you can learn so much about a society by studying the kinds of magic that are being pursued. Yeah, I think they're not interested in humans. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Because, uh, the, yeah, uh, but that's maybe just a misunderstanding when they hear magical texts or magical rituals. They think of Harry Potter and and weird things, just yeah. weird things, uh, occult, uh, yeah. occult uh, uh, and, and, and possibly even illegitimate, terrible things uh, that, that are just irrational and, and and used by people who do not know uh, better and uh, that is something certainly with regard to antiquity that we should that that is an approach that doesn't lead us to an understanding of the texts because in in many of these societies it is impossible to draw a line between magic religion and 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 scientific uh, scholarly effort uh, they they all come uh, together in the service of coping with being a human being, with, with uh, in in a world that was much more precarious than we in 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 the Western world, certainly in in the wealthy Western nations of today, can even imagine. And these practices were were part of of coping with uh, the typical precarious situations that occur to human to to humans throughout their life and therefore in these rituals once one looks beyond the some of the symbolic gestures that remind us immediately of voodoo practices and things like that one, once you look into the texts more deeply uh, and engage with them then then you can see that they do not only tell us something about specific ritual practices and symbols but about how human life, how humans were perceived, and how uh, they made sense of the world in which they had to live. I would also take this opportunity to say that's also true of voodoo, the actual voodoo practices. You're in, indeed, yeah. I, I thought when when saying it, I thought, well, <laughs> I hope I'm corrected here. Yeah, thank you. Um, 
let's return to the the, the dreaded research outputs. Um, so we we now have a picture in our mind of these amazingly interesting conversations going on between you and your colleagues who work on Egyptology. And then you get Gideon Bohack on the phone. He flies in and you all, you discuss the, the Jewish material and then, you know, it's all happening behind the scenes, but what's the front facing side of this aside from this interview we're doing now, where you're telling people about the project, what kind of things are going to be products of, of the project? Yeah, there are of course, uh, not only, conversations between academics in, in, in closed rooms, but we also have conferences and workshops uh, which people can join, should also then be able to join uh, online. Uh, so I hope that that there's some wider engagement that we will make that possible uh, beyond the group itself that is at any given time in Würzburg. The output otherwise will be, well, scholarly articles and books that are produced within the specific projects of individuals and hopefully then reflect in their conclusions and the way they discuss their material, uh, the uh, experience of working in that group and engaging also with other texts, not only with one's own texts. The other ambition that we have, and um, but that is then at the end of, of the second uh, phase, but we, we do have the ambition that over time there will emerge a new kind of handbook on magic in antiquity that is co-authored by the people who work together, who know each other, and is structured in a less additive fashion than we see that in the very useful handbooks that we have, that we all use and, and, and benefit by, but that can be structured in, in a less additive way that has a chapter on culture one, chapter culture two, chapter culture three, and then maybe culture five slash six. Um, but that uh, takes an, rather an approach that looks at phenomena and then deals with them from various angles to bring, yeah, to get these cultures talking to each other. So I, I do hope that apart from the individual research output, there will also be a common research output by the group as it grows and develops over the years. I, for one, look forward to that publication. Um as you say, we have many useful handbooks and the only thing that I've seen on the non-additive integration, integrated side approach to magic will generally be either some insider magic text that says the great tradition of magic is such and such and Hermes Trismegistus this and the ancient sages that, or something like a Carl Jung who's subsuming a lot of evidence to a master theory which and ignoring the evidence that doesn't fit the master theory. So to take a historicist detail-oriented approach to this and still looking for synthetic bird's-eye view um, pictures is a desideratum. It's something that, you know, everyone has been waiting for, I think, in this in the study of magic. Well, we'll, we'll try. Yes. <laughs> Uh, that's certainly the the ambition to to bridge this gap between uh, this very big picture approach that then sometimes ignores the the evidence or, or actually misre misrepresents uh, uh, the the evidence uh, where people are less in control of the sources. And on the other hand, the the other approach that is typical of people like me that we're very much coming from editing very specific manuscripts and 
and then try by trying to understand them and the specific ritual there, then uh, become a bit more broader, but but never engage with neighboring uh, disciplines as such in a in a in a really uh, sustainable and 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 deeper way, rather than apart from from going to conferences and having private discussions. Right. There's one other thing I wanted to ask you about. Um because this is very important. Many of our listeners will be glad this project is happening and looking forward to seeing things begin to flow out of it. I also encourage people to keep an eye on either the page for this interview or the website of the project, because as these lectures that are you can attend online start to appear, people will be able to go check them out. And there's going to be, I predict, some really, really good uh, discussions. But what about the Fellows Program? Because there will be one or two people listening to this who are scholars of ancient magic, who have an amazing research project, and they think, ah, if only I had the ability to go somewhere for a year and work on this project, it would be fantastic. But it's it's on this kind of somewhat obscure facet of ancient magic that no one wants to uh, fund me to study. Drop me an email. <laughs> have a look at the website. There's a description also of the Fellows Program, its general conditions and and, and its layout. We usually with with postdoc fellows we we have then an announcement when the next cohort, so to say, when we want to receive applications for the next cohort. But in principle, feel free to to drop me or any of my colleagues here in Würzburg an email, and uh, we're we're really looking forward to hearing from you. Daniel Schwemer, thank you so much. Um, I have a one um, slightly irresponsible question to put to you before I let you go. Are you aware of the the two MA programs in the study of magic that have recently appeared? One at Exeter and one at the University of South Carolina. No, I'm not. MA programs in uh -huh. the history of magic, roughly speaking, very mm -hmm. broad. Um, and I wonder if you feel like there's also uh, Bernd Christian Otto's project, which strikes me as um, yes, I'm, I'm very, that's a partner project of ours, right? Yeah. So, kind of doing yeah. something not dissimilar to what you're doing, but for the later period where yeah. you stop, you know, going from late antiquity onward. Indeed. Um, yes. Do you, think, do you think that now is magic's time? Like we're living in a, in a moment where in academe, for whatever reasons, magic is a hot topic and great things are happening in the study of magic. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's certainly from the field that I'm coming from. Uh, as I said, this field is only now maturing in a way that enables it to communicate with other uh, ancient cultures. Early on, we, we just didn't have the texts available to, to really uh, study uh, magical text traditions in a more comprehensive uh, fashion. And no one in classics could be blamed to ignore uh, ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia because uh, you had to study the field to really uh, engage with it. And that is, from my perspective as an sociologist, a recent development uh, that we should take advantage of. And the other uh, magical moment, in a way, is from what I'm reading in, in, in the publications, in classics, and, and people working on the various magical text traditions in late antiquity, I get the impression that these discussions about terminology the question of what is magic, what is not magic. This is a discussion that has been very fruitful over the past 20 years. But I get the feeling it's 
been exhausted. We're over it. Uh, yeah, people are over it. And certain things have been clarified, and we, we have a clear methodological and theoretical set ready to work with. And Egyptologists and sociologists who join the crowd now can adopt that, and we don't have to restart this whole uh, discussion. So also from a theoretical point of view, I think the study of magic is is entering a new phase, uh, a more mature uh, phase of study uh, compared to what we saw in, in the past 20 years, which on which we are, of course, building. Uh, and we use the knowledge uh, that was gained through that discourse and, and research. But I think the time is ripe to broaden out uh, and use the theoretical foundations that have been laid by others. Professor Daniel Schwema, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sharing this fascinating project with our listeners. I'm incredibly excited that this thing even exists, and uh, I look forward to seeing the, the research unfold. Thank you very much for having me, and let's stay in touch. I'm, I'm happy to report when we have maybe things to talk about, about individual projects or conferences. That's and so great. And in the meantime, stay esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>